This is Eric Rutan of Cannibal Corpse. You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast with Andrew McKay-Smith. You have tuned in to a conversation between myself and one of the all-time guitar greats. I'm talking about Joe Satriani, one of the originals, one of the original shredders. He's inspired entire movements and, as you'll soon hear, a revolution in extreme metal. Now, the conversation was brought about due to the launch of a new album, a new solo album from the great man. It is titled The Elephants of Mars. Now as a treat, if you are listening via the podcast apps, that being Spotify, Apple Music and God knows however many others are out there, you will soon hear Sailing the Seas of Ganymede. If you have tuned in via YouTube, fantastic, but we won't be able to hear the song. We'll cut to the conversation right now. So again, via the podcast apps, here is Sailing the Seas of Ganymede, taken from the new album, The Elephants of Mars, on YouTube. Well, here is the man himself. Let's go.
can you hear me all right? Such I can indeed. How are you? Very good. Just getting that phone back in its harness there. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I love the quiver of axes you got behind there. It's so great to see that they're a part of the family, so to speak. Yeah, I, uh, I'm always looking for that one guitar that is going to, you know, feel the most comfortable that particular day. You never know, you know, yeah. which guitar is going to talk to you. So, yeah, I'm all constantly bringing them out and, and going, oh, yeah, I love this one. <laughs> how many how many guitars here's a good question for you to start things off how many guitars not that you currently own but do you think you've owned over the years oh yeah wow no one's ever asked me that one that's a tough one to know <laughs> um i'm gonna say that uh it's funny i didn't have a lot of guitars up until i don't know maybe around 2000 when uh, I started thinking I really wanted to experiment with some different kinds of guitars. So up until then, you know, I had maybe four or five or 10, maybe, uh, mm. I was totally uninterested because I used to work in a guitar store that was a vintage guitar store. Mm. And I got totally turned off to that whole way of, of being a collector. I just couldn't care less. I, I and that's why I started building my own guitars from scratch. I thought, I just don't want to be part of the whole vintage scene. Uh, but yeah, so like I said, around 2000, it started. I think we've never had more than 200 guitars in the inventory. Mm. And I should point out that probably for every JS model, there's been maybe six to seven prototypes mm -hmm. that really look horrible. I mean, like, you know, all the wrong color parts and pieces that we thought would be cool. And then we put it together and we go, Oh, that doesn't work, you know, but you know, I would wind up with them and they just sit there, uh, in, in the main facility for, for years. Um, so yeah, I don't, I gotta, I don't know, thousand guitars. I don't know. Maybe that. <laughs> it's an in, incalculable, incalculable number. I'll get it out. There you go. It it's, uh... is, but I mean, cheers for you. Cause that's, that's, that's the most original question I've ever gotten. <laughs> it must be, it, I, I do, I've done almost 700 interviews at this point, um, right across the spectrum of rock, heavy metal, um, Al Anderson from the Whalers, you know, these sorts of people. Yeah. I'm a guitarist and a bassist, but uh, yeah, I, I listen back to some of the interviews that are being conducted and it just feels like as though the people who are asking you questions rely on your legacy as opposed to doing their research about what you're doing now. Do you find that? Yeah, very often. I get the same questions over and over again. Uh, but, you know, you learn, I think, as a performer to respect the fact that these people have gone out of their way to come and see you or talk to you. It's mm. just one small moment in their life that's very interesting and rich. And the fact that you're going to be part of it is really special. So I, I you know, I tread carefully and, and I tell the truth and do my best. <laughs> That is probably the most profound way I've ever heard that. I've asked that question a few times, but I reckon I'll hand that to you. That's the most profound commentary I've had attributed to that <laughs> scenario, <laughs> I think. And because and you get it clearly, you know, you're, you're the one up there on stage. We are fans. You know, I saw you in 2012, that magnificent G3 show that you did with Steve, uh, the two Steves. And Steve. The, <laughs> what, do, what do you remember about that particular? I mean, I've definitely asked questions about the, the brilliant new album, by the way, but that particular tour, was that uh, was that a good one for you, that 2012 G3 Australian tour? 
Oh, it was so much fun. Oh, my God. Uh, I mean, one thing, it's always great to play with Steve I. I mean, it, we just have a very, uh, wow, we just have a very brotherly connection. And, the, and, you know, we can't help but pinch ourselves every time we're on stage together because fresh in our minds, it was just yesterday, we were two little high school kids in my backyard sitting on the ground playing guitars, you know, mm. thinking like one of these days we'll be grownups and we'll be playing all around <laughs> the world. So it's really special. Um, and if you've ever hung around Steve Lukather, you know that your face will hurt after about 10 minutes from laughing harder than you've ever laughed before. Mm. And he's wonderfully relentless with keeping the mood up and keeping you laughing. So, and then he plays, you know, I mean, his musicianship is just, it's it's at the top you know he's really an amazing musician and uh it's always great to play with him mm. yeah i love the show i was at the brisbane performance yeah uh, uh I, I tell you who i was impressed by was your bassist that you had that night the fellow with the long hair that's very animated i haven't done oh. yeah who was that was that uh was it really tall or yes really tall that would have been alan whitman uh, I think he had really long hair at the time. Uh, played a P bass, right? Correct. Was he P yeah. Yeah. Alan and I go way back. Uh, Alan uh, used to play with, um, oh, who did he play with? The, did he play with the Lloyds? And uh, no, he played with, uh, oh, I can't remember. But we, <laughs> when I was in the squares, we did a lot of clubs together. I mean, it was tough slugging it out in, in the, in the clubs, but I always really uh, loved Alan. Great musician, great attitude. Uh, he wound up being a, a journalist, a writing partner with my webmaster, John Luini, for many years. Um, and then he started playing with the Merman, uh, a great sort of psychedelic surf band here in San Francisco. And uh, that's when I reached out to him, actually. Jeff Campitelli and I went to see him play at the Independent in San Francisco. Uh, as when he was playing with the Merman, I just really loved his attitude. Uh, so much energy and force. And yeah. uh, he really seemed to tap into what the guitar player was doing and what he needed to be able to create that hypnotic modern surf sound. And, uh, you know, because a lot of musicians, they go out there and they just want to do their thing no matter what anybody else in the band is doing, you know, <laughs> but Alan's always been really great uh, uh, at really plugging into the band and doing the best thing for the band. Hmm. And um, uh, anyway, so yeah, I, that was a great uh, moment. We did an album together and a bunch of touring around the world. Uh, and it was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. A lot of fun to watch it, you know, too. So uh <laughs> Um, look, I've got I've got so little time with you, but that's uh, that means I've got to sort of condense things in. So I'm going to get stuck into talking about the album because okay. uh, the new album. Look, I, the presser says it's your 19th, but I count 18. So that'll be the first question: Is it your 18th or your 19th solo album? I have no idea. Um, this started this controversy started a number of albums ago, and I think it had to do with the fact that do you count Dreaming Number 11? as a studio album because there's one studio track on it uh -huh. or, and, and then at some point, I think the publishers and the record company said we should count it. And then the number jumped up. So we've just been saying 19, well, uh, but it really matters one way or the other uh, <laughs> to, to me. 
<laughs> yeah, look, they're, they're your albums. They can be 18, this can be the 18th or the 19th, you know. But, but you yeah. know, the point is, Satch, is that, look, it is uh, one album amongst the hundreds of releases upon which you have appeared. And, look, everything you've ever done is just rolled gold quality. What, what is present on this album here is everything that fans love about you playing, I believe. I'm an old fan. Go right back to the late 80s when I was a young fella. You were one of the first rock and metal artists I was certainly aware of, uh, courtesy of surfing the Alien album, killer album that got so many of us into rock and heavy metal. It is a gateway album. But look, yeah. some, something else far beyond the shred, um, you've always known how to compose a song, and that's that's crucial. And, you, you know, you've, you've mentioned this already, but you give the musicians plenty of room to shine in a way, you know, like you're talking about your bassist there that you worked with in uh, 2012. But look, I have read the presser, and apparently this is a unique album. But uh, just for people listening, why why is this a unique album for you? Uh, well, I certainly started with a premise and a set of rules for myself that were um, the strongest I had ever, you know, put in front of myself. Uh, and basically, I said, I got to write better songs, come up with more creative arrangements get better guitar sounds, play better guitar, get a team together that understands and joins me in this goal to try to make a, an outstanding album that will be ahead of the rest of them in the catalog. And I know that's a small, <laughs> small ask of yourself, but I thought, you know, I've, the pandemic has sidelined me and now is the time. I have no excuse. I can't say like, oh my God, I've been touring for 18 months. I have no time to write you know, the next epic album. Uh, I had all the time in the world and my job is to make music for people. So I just got busy at my job. Um, and then like everybody else in the world, you know, oh my God, there was so much to write about. There was just so much intensity of daily life uh, from good to bad. Uh, and and uh, so I just poured myself into it and and I didn't stop. Uh, until I got results that I thought were outstanding. We had, you know, on our side, we had no time clock. We had no date on the calendar. Uh, so I gave myself weeks to figure out how to approach playing small parts, difficult parts. When I sent files around the world, I said, take your time. You know, uh, if you want to spend a couple of weeks trying to figure out your angle, go right ahead. I don't want to rush you. Only send the stuff back that you think is the, is what you would love to hear. And that really enriched the album because everybody got a chance to shine. Their personalities really come through. You really hear Kenny, Brian, Ray, and Eric really having an influence on the album, which is what I thought would answer that, that second goal, which is to, you know, to have more creative arrangements. And that means making room for people who are really great to, to shine through. You've you've always done that though. I've got to say, I've noticed that is your yes, the shredders there, the epic playing, but on across your albums, they're devoid of ego, which is a crazy thing, really, because of your ability <laughs> on the guitar. But um, I mean, do do you find that the musicians that you choose to work with, do you have to seek them out, or are they drawn to you? Oh, uh, you know, I've always just operated in my own little world. And then when I get an idea, I start making phone calls or sending text messages out to find out if people are interested. Uh, and you never know. I mean, I remember I was, I think I was in an airport somewhere and I was thinking about 
what I was going to do for my next album. And it just dawned on me that, wow, wouldn't it be great if I had like somebody who played guitar and understood guitar, but was a killer keyboard player. And I'm just, you know, sitting there waiting for my plane. And I get this thought like Mike Keneally, <laughs> you know, I, I've stood right next to him on stage. Of course, I should give him a call. You know, maybe Steve's not using them right now. I don't know. So I just sent him uh, an email as I'm sitting there waiting for my plane. And I got an email right back. And Mike's like, hi, Joe. Yeah, I'm available. What, what do you have in mind? And I thought, great. And so it happened quite organically and really fast from idea to reaching out to somebody and to getting a positive response. And of course, Mike wound up in the band for, for many years. We did a lot of great stuff. And he, I was able to give him a lot of real estate on the albums mm. because he's an amazing musician. Mm. Something else I noticed it sounds like you worked in the Phrygian dominant mode more on this album than in the past. And, you know, in particular, Doors of Perception is probably my favourite cut across the album. Um, Great. Yeah, is that the case? Did you consciously start working in these different Eastern-sounding modes? No, I, I think that's just an accident. Um, I just composed a, a lot of material. Uh, probably over 20 pieces were at some point in contention for the album. Mm. But like any other album project, you... You know, as the weeks go by, you start to sort of eliminate certain songs because maybe you just couldn't finish them or they didn't turn out like you thought. Or maybe the response from the band uh, makes you feel like it's not something that they're really jumping at, you know. And mm -hmm. it's as the leader, you want to make sure you bring stuff in to the project that is going to inspire the band as well. And then you start, then, then also you start to manage the idea of the album as a whole project, as an artistic statement. And then you go, oh, that song, that doesn't belong in this overall statement. It's a great song. Maybe save it for the next album or mm. uh, trade it with a friend or in something like Yes. <laughs> it's basically what happens is it just gets, you know, uh, pushed to the side of the desk. And there were a lot of songs that, you know, there was the yes pile and the no pile and the, and the, the, the things like went back and forth many times. Uh, you know, the first song, uh, Sahara, was a song that I wrote for Ray Thistlethwaite to sing. And I sent lyrics and, and a demo with me trying to like play guitar like a vocalist. And I could tell that the response was not, you know, super fantastic. So I, I put it on the no pile and then my producer after a few weeks said, oh, that's got to go back on the yes pile. Just rewrite it for instrumental. So I, it took me a few weeks to get rid of that vocal melody and to, to rewrite the melody so that it worked for the electric guitar. Um, and the opposite would have been, as you said, the doors of perception. I, I woke up one day with an idea and a feeling and I just took out the acoustic guitar. I made a loop banging on the guitar and everything. And then I recorded that piece. It was so fast. Um, and uh, so sometimes it goes really quick and everybody jumps on it and, every, and it's, you know, an easy, easy track to get going. I'll tell you another track that sounded like it was easy to get going, but the playing is just magnificent, is Seas of Ganymede, uh, Sailing the Seas of Ganymede, I think it's called. Um, yeah, that's good. Yeah, the bass in that one there. So, so with your bassist, do you work on rhythms together to come up with that? Or can you tell me how that song evolved? 
That song uh, was an older piece of music that um, I, that I had been working on, and uh, I was just think I, I you know it was one of those songs that wasn't entirely finished, and I just kept waiting for that one other component. Um, when I brought it, this is actually a funny story. When I brought it to the band, I sent it to Ray, and at the time he was either in Tasmania or or, or in Australia touring with Thirsty Merc, and I must have not been clear in my direction but i you know i said put a solo on here whatever you want to do and i thought he picked the spot that i had laid out for him uh but he sent back the song with a brilliant solo in the wrong place but once i heard it i just told eric you know what let's just leave it right there you know because ray must have put it there for some reason he must you know mm. he's a great musician he must have some instinct let's just leave it I'll rewrite the second half of the song so that it makes sense with Ray's solo. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that, sometimes that happens. And I think um, we got uh, Ray on there first. No, no, sorry. We got um, we got uh, a Kenny playing drums first um, and working with my demo bass. And then once we've sorted out all of Kenny's performance, because he would give us like, you know, five different versions of what he thought could work. And we'd be spoiled for choice, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, then we sent it to Brian and Brian could carefully look at the whole thing and he'd go, OK, there's Joe. There's new Kenny. Here's Ray's crazy thing in the wrong spot. <laughs> I got to make sense of this. And, you know, eventually uh, pulled it all together. Uh, and then I actually added some rhythm guitars in the end and one little melody. So it did go back and forth a lot until we thought it, it, everything about it was perfect. Yeah, it is. It's a fantastic song. There's not a note out of place. There's not a beat that shouldn't be where it needs, where it is when you listen back to it. Even the length of the song, fantastic work. Yeah. Um, look, I'm just very conscious of the fact I've probably got another four minutes with you. Okay. Gosh, so um, many, so many questions I'd love to ask you. But um, look, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you a compliment that I don't believe you've ever been issued before. Okay. You, you are one of the people that helped spearhead the death and black metal revolution, and I'll explain. Oh. Okay. Your tutoring and mentorship for Larry Lalonde was extremely important because Larry's guitar playing has gone on to be, it was at the time, it wasn't seen as much, to be honest with you, but looking back, it was revolutionary, okay, because of how the speed, it was beyond Slayer because he was incorporating a lot of that Zapper-esque stuff. It was being far beyond the whammy bar, I call it. Mm. Are, you, are you, do you have any awareness of, of, Death and black metal insofar as do you listen to it? Is it music that you appreciate if you don't listen to it? Oh, man, you, I was there when it was starting up. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I was I remember teaching at Second Hand Guitars and I had all these young kids, uh, some of them not even teenagers yet. And that was their reality. And uh, then I had a couple of like uh, kids who were going to be pros like Larry, uh, Alex Skolnick, uh, Kirk Hammett, of course, mm -hmm. uh, and a number of others. Uh, they were in local bands and that's what that was their generation's music. And, you know, as a teacher, I was very careful not to influence them in any way, because even though I was just a couple of years older, when you're at that age, a couple of years is a big deal. So mm -hmm. I was a grown up. I was a rock and roll guy, you know, and, and I could tell that, you know, during the lessons I had to be just I had to tread carefully not to change them, just to supply them with the necessary information so that they could continue going along their way. I remember recording uh, with Possessed and 
Uh, John Cunaberti, also uh, my good friend and, and producer, uh, engineer of many records with me, um, you know, he had a really big hand in shaping the sound of that album uh, mm -hmm. because the two of us agreed that what we were hearing from the, the beginning of that movement was just too much reverb and delay. And, mm -hmm. and, it, and it was it was only because the studios had it, you know, yes. they had a reverb, you know, <laughs> so they turn it on to cover up the fact that either these bands couldn't play or the songs weren't good or anything. But we got to work with these guys and we thought, let's just make it dry and in your face and let's work on the arrangements of the songs, help them tighten them up and then just record the best performances of every parts of the songs and edit it together to make something they were really happy with. And uh, I mean, the, you know, we had what, six days and, uh, the singer had strep throat and one of the guitar players was pretty drunk and had to be sent home. It was, <laughs> it wasn't ideal, but we had Larry who was so focused and he was so funny and free. And, you know, there was really, that part of it was great. Thank you from on behalf of all death and black metal and extreme metal fans indeed for, for <laughs> doing what you just mentioned. You gave him, you gave, you didn't, pen people in you know alex one of the greatest thrash and heavy metal guitarists ever you didn't send yeah. them down a road where you beat the metal out of them i went through it myself as a young fella i, I want to play faith no more songs and of course the bass teacher gave me eagles now i appreciate <laughs> the eagles now but i didn't when i was 14 i hated them yeah <laughs> you know but that's but, but that's your that's your very very significant role in the evolution of music and i've got to say it's you know, people who don't understand it look at it from the outside and think, oh, it's devil music or what have you. But this is music that's intrinsically important for people's day to day. And you've had a huge yeah. role in that. So I want to, I just wanted to thank you for doing that. Oh, you're very welcome. <laughs> I think I'd better wrap things up. Uh, again, thank you for doing what you've been doing for, for so long. Uh, congratulations on, on an epic career. You've just got such a great aura around your Satch. I've loved listening to oh. you over the years and hope to see you down here again soon. Thank you. I hope to be there soon. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Catch you. Right. Bye. Nowhere near enough time to talk to the great man about his magnificent accomplishments across decades of a guitar playing career. Yeah, really admire Satch. He's just a fella that has followed his muse. He has very little, no perceptible ego. Do you agree? talking to one of the most accomplished guitarists in history and there's no perceptible ego there. He just reminds you of your very cool uncle. Well, I'm in my mid-40s, so for someone of my vintage, I reckon that's the case. If you like what you heard, go across to scarsandguitars.com and there are many more conversations just like it for you to sink your, or wrap your ears around, I was going to say sink your teeth into. Wrap your ears around is a better way of framing it, but if you're more inclined to read books, I don't blame you because I write them. And I've written one in particular that I want to talk about, Scars and Guitars Volume 1. It's a bit of a manifesto. I've put together around about 60 entries featuring 90 conversations culled from almost, almost 700 at this point, almost 700 conversations that I've conducted for this indie journalism venture since 2017 go across to scarsandguitars.com follow the links and you can easily download a sample from amazon apple google it's all there and i want to tell you even more about it so please stick around 
My name's Andrew Mackay-Smith and I'm the host of the Scars and Guitars podcast. That was a conversation with the great Joe Satriani and this is me telling you a little bit more about my book. Ciao for now. This is Eric Rutan of Cannibal Corpse. You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast with Andrew McKay-Smith. I've been the host of the Scars and Guitars podcast since 2017. The first musician I interviewed for the show was David Vincent from Morbid Angel and things have just snowballed from there. In all, I've posted almost 650 podcast episodes featuring conversations with many of the leading lights of rock, heavy metal and beyond. It just got to a point where I thought, I need to write a book about all this, so that's exactly what I did. In Scars and Guitars Volume 1, you'll read a heap of deep reveals and commentary, such as Des Fafara talking about Coal Chamber and why the band will never return. You know, if you're a, a band just starting out, you need to hear me. Do not start a band with partners. Yeah, wise words, uh, sage advice, mate, for anybody. Don't ever, because I I can't go do Cold Chamber right now unless I get others involved. Phil Anselmo talks about the episode in his career, which gives him the greatest sense of accomplishment. I think the staying power of the the fans and the staying power of the the songs, you know, whether it's Pantera, Down, or Superjoint, the fans remember the songs. Alex Skolnick from Testament confirms it, yes. Playing the guitar in Ozzy's band is anything but an ordinary gig. Will Silent Oz from Demu Borgir write a book? Pa from Sabaton gives advice to people who want to start a band. Look at the team around you, look at the bandmates. If, uh, if the guys want to be on the stage, then it's all cool. If the guys want to be backstage, then it's not going to be cool. Current and former members of Cradle of Filth discuss the band's seminal 90s material. Read about the reaction. To George Lynch and Mark from Suicide Silence's comments when they throw shade at then President Donald Trump. We have this idiotic monster, you know, this egotistical, self-aggrandizing, complete piece of shit in there. I, I, I just, I just can't understand how we've gotten to this place. And yeah, we kicked a hornet's nest with Sepultura. Percussive overlord Gene Hoagland talks about recording with Chuck Schuldiner. Chuck was always, um, you know, he was, he was. Very, you know, very open-minded, and and he was into having his his musicians that were playing with him just reach out for for the best stuff that they had. Phil Campbell from Motorhead discusses what it takes to get sober. John Five answers his critics who dismiss his tenure with Marilyn Manson. You know, my name is John Five, and Manson gave me that name, and um, I had some of the best years of my life in that band and, and learned a lot. And we get the lowdown on Trey Zagtoth from those who would know, including his mother. All across Scars and Guitars Volume 1, there are moments of tension, relief, tragedy, exhilaration, and throughout it all, you'll obtain insight that I believe no one else has managed to obtain from many of your favourite artists. So treat yourself. Scars and Guitars Volume 1 is currently available as an ebook with a print edition on the horizon. Follow the links attached and download a sample. I'm sure you'll be compelled to read the whole book.